Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. I'm Martin Shipton, and with me today is Andrew R.T. Davis, who is the leader of the Welsh Conservatives and, in fact, the leader of the opposition at the National Assembly. Andrew, could you tell me something about your roots? Good opening question. Um, I am from a farming background in the Vale of Glamorgan. Uh, I never thought for a minute that I'd be a full-time politician by the 49th year of my life. I've uh, been in the Assembly now 11 years. Um, when I was in school, all I ever wanted to do was farm the land, because uh, my father was a farmer as well. Uh, and it does seem to be a bit of a principle that if you're from farming stock, you stay within the farming community. Wasn't he um, a, f- a prize fighter or something, I read somewhere? I wouldn't say a prize fighter, but he used to do a bit, fair, fair bit of ne- bare-knuckle boxing he did then. Um, and he came from a very humble background, uh, from Newbridge on Wye. Um, and in those days, you'd travel around the fairs and fates and carnivals or whatever that used to be on uh, and basically offer yourself out to work on farms and you might be taken on for a month or two and then you'd move on again and then eventually my father along with others from Mid Wales made it to South Wales um, and then had the great opportunity of working for a guy called Walter Jones uh, from St Mary Hill um, and Walter Jones looked at my father as a second son um, and enabled him to get a tenancy on an estate called the Ratcliffe Estate uh, which was a large estate in the Vale of Glamorgan and my mother and my father that was about the mid 50s I think it was started with absolutely nothing uh, two suitcases one armchair and a wireless uh, they literally had that um, and from that they moved through the estate uh, and managed to settle on the farm we're at at the moment and then the estate in the early 60s chose to sell up um, and that was my father's big my father and mother's big break because they got their stake as it were then uh, and from that they had three children my two brothers and myself uh, and we still live at the family farm now we do um, and the mad cow crisis of the 90s where politicians just seemed to be totally indifferent to the crisis that was happening in the countryside um, really sparked my interest in politics because I thought well if this lot are making such a mess of it then instead of moaning about it get involved um, and so the late 90s I joined the Conservative Party where not many people were joining the Conservative Party What was it the, about the Conservative Party that appealed to you particularly? Well I, I'm a person who believes in aspiration I'm a person who believes in opening the door of opportunity to people uh, and in particular I'm a strong unionist I'd be passionately in the union of the United Kingdom um, but above all I believe that there's good in everyone it's just that the, those individuals need to have the opportunity to unlock that aspiration that desire to succeed uh, and the Conservative Party is about that uh, it's not about taking off people it's not about blocking people getting on in life it's about creating the conditions to allow people to get on in life and build strong and stable communities. Had you observed anything uh, in your younger days, Andrew, so far as uh, perhaps the control of local authorities by the Labour Party, which had turned you off them? 
Well, as I said, in my early days, I was quite indifferent to politics. Um, you know, I, I, until I came into this assembly, I'd never held elected office. Uh, so I hadn't done maybe the traditional route of maybe coming through local government uh, or maybe working within a political environment. Um, and so other than maybe looking at local authorities who you know, clean the, do the bins, fill the potholes, um, and obviously handle the planning applications, uh, that was really the sum total of my understanding how local authorities uh, work. I, I think a big influencer for me was the winter of discontent in 1979, uh, where you know chaos reigned, if you like. Uh, the unions ruled the country. Uh, beer and sandwiches was order of the day in number 10. Um, and I can well remember, you know, we didn't know whether we'd be in school one day from the other, because if the heating lorry hadn't come through to deliver the central heating oil, or the kitchen deliveries hadn't arrived, the school lunches wouldn't be on. Um, so you wouldn't be in school. Uh, and that was the chaos that reigned in the late 70s, and that informed uh, some of my political thinking and then the change that happened in the 80s uh, but above all I go back to this point that I believe passionately that people have good in them and they have ability in them and I appreciate that ability is measured in different ways and the Conservative Party uh, party is an enabler it's an enabler for people to get on in life uh, and that's why I'm in politics. Was there a particular person in the Conservative Party who you saw as a role model if you like? Um... I would say the role model that I would draw on would be either my late grandmother uh, or my father, uh, my father and mother, should I say. Um, in that, as I said, from a very humble background, my, my late grandmother, she lived to 102 in Newbridge on Wye, and well into her 80s, her late 80s, she was still cleaning the new inn pub uh, in the village there. Um, and whilst materially they had nothing, uh, I mean literally nothing, uh, they had a huge bond uh, with the family, the huge warmth. Uh, and appreciation and they were blue collar unionists uh, I can always remember when I took my wife up to see them uh, who was my girlfriend at the time uh, and we walked into the living room because literally it was a two bedroom one living room one kitchen uh, property um, and my grandmother was sitting there and she said I must apologise to you I must apologise to my uh, wife to Julia who was my girlfriend at the time that awful man's on the television uh, and he shouldn't be on the television when you walk in and it was Neil Kinnock who was on the TV then and the rug had been put on the floor um, and the rug should have been put on the floor and all the rest of it and as I said they were blue collar unionists they were then, then uh, who were passionate about uh, their community uh, and had a load of warmth uh, but never really had much materially they didn't they passed that to my father and then my mother as well and the team together mother and father created the future for us because there are those people um, on the left who would say that perhaps the story that your father um, exemplified mm -hmm. of somebody who made something for himself... My father and my mother. And your mother, OK, out of humble roots, mm -hmm. is something which is akin to the American dream, if you like, where everyone is supposed to be able to aspire to improve their lot and to get on, and that's the ideal, that people can do that. But that, in reality, that sort of trajectory is only possible for a small number of people and the mass of people who 
are poor and working class remain poor and working class. How do you respond to that? I disagree with that entirely. I mean, it does put a smile on my face very often when I hear politicians of the left talking about class uh, because they want to embed themselves in this class structure. To me, class doesn't exist in modern Britain, 21st century Britain. We live in a society uh, that does enable does allow uh, people to get on. This historical uh, stereotype of a conservative who inherited all wealth, uh, never paid any tax, uh, and has gone in the village and rode roughshod over everyone, uh, is completely wrong. I mean, you know, the Conservatives have been the party that has put this country back on its feet uh, time and time again, uh, and each time has left the country in a better state when it's left office than when it came in. Uh, and that has been, by the hard work and dedication of the people of this country who have taken the opportunities the Conservatives have given them um, to own their own home, to have their stake in society, to improve themselves through the education system of our great country uh, and to uh, set up their own businesses or to work in businesses to take home a decent day's pay uh, to ultimately provide for their family. You know, those huge watershed moments, uh, certainly in the 80s, that actually gave people a stake in society and now be rolled back by the Labour government here in Cardiff Bay is something that I bitterly regret that they're using legislation to withdraw the right to buy, you know, the right for someone to have the ability to own their own home. Uh, that's, that, that's a fundamental right and, and it enables so many families here in Wales to have that stake in society. But is this the case, isn't it, Andrew, that there remain huge disparities of wealth and that you can look at... Uh, people who are chief executives of uh, large corporations who earn millions and millions of pounds a year. And then there are situations where the people who are working for them uh, are sometimes finding it very hard to get by because in many cases they've been on pay freezes for years. Uh, I mean, I'm aware of people who work as journalists who've had pay freezes for eight years and they find it very tough. Um, for example, uh, Richard Desmond, who's just sold the Express to uh, the uh, Trinity Mirror Group, for which I work, uh, was paying himself a huge amount of money and yet he wouldn't give his own workers a pay rise. And uh, that's something that doesn't just apply in the media. It applies in many uh, companies, in many industries. Is that fair and isn't it something that needs to be tackled? I don't think it's fair at all. I mean, that's why uh, in the Sophia Gardens conference that we had, if I get my years right, and uh, you can correct me if I get this wrong, I think it was 2014, um, you know, I was proud to stand at the lectern as Conservative leader here in Wales and actually say that if we formed the government in 2016, we would be providing the living, we'd be the first part of the United Kingdom to be the living wage economy and paying the living wage. Um, I know others have caught up with that thinking now that they have then, and it, amen to that. Um, but if you look at uh, a lot of the captains of industry today, if not all the captains of industry, it is created wealth. They have created that wealth and by creating that wealth they've created opportunities for many other people to work within those companies and create their own wealth and have their own stake in society. Uh, and so 
I fully acknowledge and say that we need to do far more to close the gap between those who receive the most and those who receive the least. I mean, that is just social justice. We need to be doing that. We do then. then. Um, but we shouldn't be looking enviously at people who earn money and a lot of money. We should be looking at ways that we can start making sure that more people can earn more money and enjoy the benefits of that money. Because let's not forget, the more money the economy makes overall the greater resource that goes into our great public services. Because you can't run public services on thin air, and if you just have the politics of envy at the heart of everything you do, actually you diminish the flow of resource into public services. You use this term, the politics of envy, um, Andrew. Um, there are, of course, a lot of people who have made a lot of money not out of hard work, but out of, for example, currency speculation, and out of uh, speculation on the derivatives markets and things like that. I mean, if we look at, for example, somebody like George Soros, um, he made billions of pounds out of the um, uh, economic crisis that afflicted uh, the UK in the 1990s. And there were many other people who have done the same. Do you think that there's something wrong with the system where that is possible? But then you can flip the coin the other way and say many people have lost shed loads of money because they've bet the, the other way they have then um, you know we need a mixed economy which offers opportunities for people to invest their money and create more money and more opportunities and more jobs uh, do I regret seeing uh, the George Soros of this world betting against the pound in 1992 of course uh, because ultimately I would like to see us always having a strong currency and a strong economy uh, and, and those opportunities aren't there for people to bet against us uh, but it is a fact that for every one bet that maybe brings a huge amount of money to the George Soros of this world. There are many other people who've lost money betting the other way. Uh, and that's because we live in a free market economy. Uh, and as I say, I go back to my point. If we create the environment that allows people to get on and create more wealth, that allows us to create more taxation to pay for our great public services. If we actually close down the opportunities to create wealth, that shrinks the tax base and ultimately shrinks our great public services. Uh, you know, it is the free market and the capitalist economy that creates the resource to provide for our NHS, to provide for our education system, to provide for our local authorities, and actually gets many of the great things done in this country. There are those who would say that uh, that's all very well, but that you actually need to have some kind of mechanisms in place to ensure uh, greater fairness. Uh, so they would talk about, uh, rather than a free market, they talk about a social market where you have regulation to ensure that businesses uh, comply with the law and that they have um, appropriate rules in place to ensure that health and safety is all right and that there's no damage to the environment. They would also say that there needs to be a balance, if you like, between uh, capital and labour, uh, because what has happened is that since the um, uh, miners' strike of the 1980s, uh, the pendulum has swung very much in favour of the employers. And now you've got a situation where you have, as it were, a new kind of working class person uh, who isn't necessarily working in manufacturing industry, although we still do have manufacturing industries, more so in Wales, actually, than in, uh, than in England. But you would have people who are working in call centres. And they, in a sense, are the new poor because they are the new working poor because they are not actually paid very well in many cases. In many cases, they are not members of trade unions, so there isn't that impetus to improve their salaries. And uh, there are 
examples where companies are quite happy to allow their workers to exist on quite small salaries uh, when they perhaps could afford to pay more. What do you say to that? Yeah, but again, flip it the other way, and there are numerous examples of brilliant companies that offer huge incentives for employees to stay with the companies, have a share in that company. I was reading about Admiral this week, for example, where because their profits have gone up, I think I've got this figure correct, uh, the employees are going to benefit from, I think, nearly £3,500 bonus. Uh, Dyson, James Dyson, for example, look at the work that he's doing to establish the engineering campus up in uh, Wiltshire as well. Then, then I, I could go on. The list is endless. You are right. Uh, where there is bad practice, as a government or as a politician in opposition, we need to root that out uh, because bad practice shouldn't be allowed to take hold anywhere. Because actually, if you have bad practice, you stifle innovation and you stifle the ability to have for people to have self worth. And it's all about, as I said at the top of this interview, I believe there's good and ability in everyone. It's about unlocking that good and that ability and offering the life chances for people to get on in life. Uh, you don't do that by reverting to the trench warfare of class warfare. Uh, I noticed for most probably the seventh or eighth time in this interview you used the term working class again, Martin. Uh, I don't identify with the class structure at all, to be honest with you. In, in the 21st century Britain, knocking on the door of the third decade, uh, if people do want to live in the Victorian or Edwardian era, great, carry on. Uh, but for me, that where we need to be looking is the future and creating those opportunities and looking at the positives and the good companies that create the climate for employees to prosper and to thrive and invest in human capital and root out the bad practices that regrettably in all walks of life you will find. And that's where we as politicians need to stamp on that. Trade unions, of course, would say that uh, the deregulation uh, that has occurred um, and the restrictions have been placed on trade unions um, since the 1980s when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister have led to an imbalance in society where the employers now have the whip hand and of course there have been recent changes to the law which make it more difficult for um, industrial action to take place. Does it concern you that um, that, that is the case? Well, unions have a vital role to play in the workplace, uh, and I make no apologies for standing up for trade unions uh, in a different mode, maybe, more of a trade organisation, but uh, I cut my teeth with the National Farmers Union as such, and you know, representing members' views, people who've put money into an organisation to speak on their behalf and to provide services as a member as well, then. Uh, and so, you know, I will stand and support the union cause, um, but I'm also someone who can look back and remember, you know, the mass walkout the flying pickets of the late 70s and 80s that devastated the the United Kingdom and devastated industry. Uh, And so it's finding that balance between strong worker representation and the ability to root out bad practice with very often the general secretaries of unions living their political fantasies and dreams on the backs of their members. Uh, There has to be some common ground uh, in the middle that actually unions do the job which... They, they can be so good at, which is representing their members' views and making sure their members aren't being done over. Uh, and anyone who wants to look back at the 70s and 80s at what happens when unions exert their power to an extreme level realises that there needed to be change and the legislation was brought in place to protect many union workers who felt that they were being bullied into action that ultimately was taking their wage packets out of their pockets. 
Looking at the farming industry, which you know better than anything, uh, Andrew, because of your background and experience in it, would you agree with uh, some that farmers have been treated very badly by supermarket (coughs) chains and that perhaps they should have been um, better organised in terms of organising their own shops, for example, their own distribution networks to cut out uh, the monopoly that these supermarkets um, uh, are able to impose on them because I'm aware that some of these supermarket chains uh, can be very tough in their uh, negotiations and in their imposition of prices on farmers, which um, does cause serious problems to the farmers. Well, supermarkets are our customers as farmers. Uh, they are part of the modern landscape. Has there been bad practice? Of course there's been bad practice. Has the agriculture industry, me included as a farmer, been slow to get our house in order so that we could uh, be better negotiators uh, and rather than be price takers, we can price setters? Of course there was more we could have done. But one of the big issues that held us back was the common agricultural policy, uh, where a lot of farmers, if you like, thought, well, there's no need to be that aggressive in the marketplace. There's no need for us to reorganise the way we sell our produce because actually each year we know we're going to get a subsidy for X, Y and Z. Uh, Now, it is important that the agricultural industry gets the subsidy and gets the support it requires because across the globe all governments offer some form of support to the agricultural industry because obviously we work in very difficult and challenging environments today we're sitting in my office and the snow is falling outside I have to say it wouldn't be a particularly good day to be out feeding stock it wouldn't be Um, so you have to accept to a point that there is public good in supporting the agricultural industry but I do believe over the last 40 to 50 years a lot of the reorganisation that we required uh, that was vital to put us in a stronger trading position um, was actually stopped progressing because of the constraints of the common agricultural policy. And that's why I became a Brexiteer and campaigned passionately for Brexit, because I do believe that there's a great opportunity for Welsh and UK agriculture outside uh, of the European Union. Do you know, we have an average age in agriculture today of 62. 62 years old is the average age of a farmer in Wales. You can't build a future uh, on an industry that has that average age. I want to make sure that we create a framework that allows young people to come into the industry and goes back to the example of my father having the opportunity of having a tenancy that put him on the road to securing his family's future Uh, and rather than masking uh, opportunities in red tape that the common agricultural uh, policy does I want to create opportunities that people can accept get access to uh, and actually succeed in in opening that door. You talk about uh, red tape Andrew but it is the case isn't it that your company uh, has had subsidies of more than £100,000 a year from the European Union Um, and one might say that it's a bit rich for somebody like you who does have a big subsidy uh, to be talking about free trade uh, and that sort of thing when the industry that you're part of, agriculture, depends very heavily on subsidies from the, the, the public sector in a way that 
other industries don't because they have state aid rules in the European Union, which make it difficult sometimes for other industries to be subsidised. So um, do you think there's any anomaly in your position, uh, Andrew? Well, surely I've got a vested interest then. <laughs> I mean, surely I should be advocating the other way. I mean, should we, Well, that's what a lot of people, people find should, odd. Should, you should be criticising me. <laughs> people, people find it odd, Andrew, that you're getting a subsidy and yet you're a Brexiteer. Well, ultimately, because I can see the opportunity the other side of Brexit and what we can map out for a future for our industry that at the moment has an average age of 62. But I, I, I turn it around, if you like. Hmm. Does it mean because we pay GPs and doctors and consultants um, a, a salary out of taxpayers' money that they shouldn't have a view on the health service? Does it mean that uh, teachers shouldn't speak about the future of the education system because they're paid out of taxation? Does it mean because the taxpayer agrees that we should pay towards policing because we want law and order in our society, uh, that police officers um, shouldn't have a view on policing. Uh, I find it a very... I don't think anyone's suggesting uh, that. Uh, well, but, but the point you're making, because I'm in receipt or other farmers are in receipt uh, of money uh, under the common agricultural policy, we shouldn't express or have a view on where we think the future should go. If the system... No, if the, I haven't if, suggested if, that at if all. The, if the system is there to support an industry, and there are many systems in place to support loads of industries um, in different shapes and forms, uh, you work to that system. Uh, if you believe that system needs changing, you speak out about it. Uh, that is what I have done. Uh, and if anything, uh, one could almost argue that what I am talking about, what I believe in, uh, actually conflicts with, obviously, the common agricultural policy that has supported the agricultural mm. industry for the last 45, 50 years. But there's a difference, isn't there, Andrew, between free trade of the kind that you were talking about and protectionism. Uh, in the United States... We've got a president who talks about America first and who is prepared to impose huge tariffs on foreign goods coming into the United States to compete with his homegrown uh, industries. Uh, if we have a so-called hard Brexit and are in a position where we're able to uh, uh, dictate our own tariffs, do you think that we should follow the example of President Trump and um, uh, protect our own industries by having huge tariffs for imports? Well, you know, again, I use the language hard Brexit, soft Brexit. There's neither one. There's going to be Brexit. And I appreciate that from the marketing of the Ramonas and the Remainers and those who don't want Brexit to happen, they want to create this, this snow feast, uh, this Armageddon that is happening outside our window here today. Um, but, you know, look on the bright side. Look at the sunshine. Uh, Theresa May went to China recently, for example, and unlocked the door on getting beef, Welsh beef, UK beef, back into the Chinese market. £500 million market for UK uh, and Welsh beef. Actually, there are huge opportunities out there. The European Union, for example, does not have a trade deal with China, with India, with Brazil, with America, uh, is on the verge of maybe securing one for Japan. We don't know that yet or not. Uh, instead of looking at the negatives, look at the positives. There is a half-pint glass which is full, not empty there. Let's get on with the job of being positive about Brexit, and rather than thinking of what one president in the sequence of presidents that come through America is talking about at the moment. Let's look at the potential of getting into a market of four, four, 450 million prosperous consumers who do want to buy our produce, who do want to buy our goods and want the opportunity to access them. Of course, if we were to have a free trade deal with the United States, Andrew, 
they have made it perfectly clear that we would have to drop the standards that we have at the moment and we would have to accept things like chlorinated chicken. Would you be in favour of accepting chlorinated chicken? That, Martin, that is complete bunkum. It was only 18 months, two years ago, that the very people who were on the Remain side were promoting the Europeans' free trade deal with America that gave access to the health service, that gave access to agricultural produce to come into the European market of 28 member states. The very same people today are saying that no, Britain shouldn't have a similar sort of trade deal. You know, the hypocrisy knows no bounds. Ultimately, we will, as Michael Gove has said, not lower our standards and not lower our safeguards here in Britain. Now, I get it we're in a debate at the moment. I get it we're in the throes of the Brexit negotiations. There will be positions being taken. But let's just for one minute stand back, reflect on what's been said, and what has been clearly said from the UK government is that any trade deal would not involve the lowering of standards into the UK from goods from outside of the UK. But it is the height of hypocrisy, Martin, when the very people who were promoting the free trade deal with America only 18 months ago are now citing the very conditions that were in that deal as being bad for Britain. Well, of course, there were people who were not in favour of that uh, particular deal and who were protesting about it. Uh, People on the left were protesting about it. The trade unions were protesting about it, so they haven't been inconsistent. As I understand it, the Labour Party were fully signed up to that agreement, as were the Liberals and all the other parties, the Welsh Nationalists and the others. Actually, the only party that was campaigning against it, as I understood it at the time, was UKIP. I don't think that, uh, that there were people in there were people in the Labour Party who were very unhappy about it. I certainly think that um, Plaid Cymru as well was raising concerns about the impact on the. But they NHS. weren't campaigning against it because via our uh, membership, via our membership of the European Union, uh, we would have had to have accepted the agreement that was been put in place, and that agreement was there. It was going live. It fell uh, apart, though, so actually, didn't it? it? Eventually, it fell apart, but it was no, through no thanks to the people who are now pointing out the reverse in the Brexit debate. So we could have that discussion back and forth. I most certainly wouldn't advance it. No, no, Andrew, so where do you stand on the idea of American companies having access to our NHS and being able to bid to run it? Well, I'm a huge believer in our NHS carrying on doing the great job it does. I mean, um, from a family, my wife's family, who have been embedded in the NHS as consultants, GPs, nurses. Uh, my one sister-in-law just retired as a cystic fibrosis nurse in Landock Hospital. Um, I believe that we've got to do all we can to protect the principle of the NHS being free at the point of need. Uh, we need to make sure that the resources go into the NHS that allow um, for new treatments to come forward. And we need to create the environment in the UK to allow the research and the new treatments of the 21st century that we require to be patented in Britain. And so I want to develop the British medical industry and the British research industry. Um, But as far as I'm concerned, I see no case to allow the American uh, super uh, health providers to come into the UK market. But they didn't Um, insist on that if we had a free trade deal with them. As I said, I I see no case for that, I don't then. So you don't Um, want a free trade deal with America? As I said, I see no case for that.
for that at the moment. I don't. And so ultimately, uh, that's not on the table as I've seen, uh, unless you've got inside information. Uh, but I, I haven't the statements have been made by um, people who are in uh, Donald Trump's cabinet yeah, saying but, but, that they would expect but that. But statements the case. are made all the time, Martin. It's a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Negotiations start at two different points and then you come together in the middle. Has there been much it, coming it, together between the EU and the UK government, has there? Because there's a negotiation. I mean, stage one has been agreed. We move into stage two. I would find it somewhat alarming if there was all these warm words and everyone said, oh yeah, everything's fine, we all agree. But time's running out, Andrew, isn't it? Time's running out. Well, no, this month is when the real hard negotiations kick off on stage two. We had the pronouncements from the European Union uh, on Tuesday, was it? Or Wednesday? Yesterday, sorry, Wednesday. Um, So, you know, we're at the start of that process. Let's just get on with the negotiations. We will get the agreement sorted by the end of the process. And ultimately, the implementation period has been acknowledged by both sides that there will be an implementation period. Uh, and ultimately, that gives us another two years to bed down what would be good for Europe and what would be good for Britain. A huge number of economists, very few dissenting voices, say that the UK's GDP will be worse under various permutations of Brexit than remaining in the EU. Do you think all those economists are wrong? Well, economists express an opinion, um, and we're all entitled to express our opinions. Uh, I think you're referring to the uh, reports that have been done on behalf of the UK government by the civil servants. Am I correct? Well, there are, I mean, in addition to many other there, reports, there, 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 are many, done. there are others who have commented. Uh, as I understand it, none of the reports actually focused on a bespoke trade deal with the European Union, which is the government's preferred option. And I go back to my comments earlier, we are at the start of this process. Uh, Negotiations are about starting at two points and coming together in the middle. Don't forget, there are five million jobs on the continent of Europe that depend on trade with Britain. There's a balance of payments deficit in favour of the European Union of £80 billion. One and a half million German manufacturing jobs depend on trade with Britain. One in seven BMWs are sold in Britain. There is every advantage for both sides here in making sure we get that agreement, and I'm confident we can do that. But if economists wish to speculate, they were speculating during the referendum. And 18 months later, I think I'm correct in saying every uh, pronouncement has been proved wrong, from jobs to the expansion of the economy to the creation of new new companies and businesses. And only yesterday, for example, Toyota confirmed the ability now for the, their plants in Britain to build the next generation car uh, and the engine plant in Deeside to build the engines for those cars then. We've uh, got the lowest the, growth in the whole of the EU. We, we had the fastest growth only a couple of years ago. So you average it out over the period... And I would suggest to you, the economy is doing very well, thank you. Nothing should be taken for granted. There is always a corner to turn in any economic cycle there is. But ultimately, if you took the pronouncements of the economists and the civil uh, and uh, others who were in the debate around the, uh, the Remain campaign, we were supposed to be in a, not a recession now, but a depression. We were supposed to have seen in excess of half a million people on the dole. We have seen actually half a million new jobs created. We have seen new companies come coming into the UK, as well as new indigenous companies starting up in the UK in record numbers. And as I said, only yesterday, Toyota confirmed that they were investing in their plants to build a new generation small car. Uh, Nissan have confirmed record investment in their Sunderland plant. Uh, Facebook have confirmed development for new headquarters in London. Uh, The list goes on. 
Well, uh, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, which was addressed by the female executive vice president of Airbus, Mm -hmm. who said that she'd had a conversation with David Davis, not our friend from Monmouth, but the uh, Brexit secretary, who had told her uh, when she had been expressing concerns about Brexit, that Brexit wasn't about the economy and that for for him and for many other people, for the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, it isn't really about the economy. It's about uh, concerns about sovereignty and uh, constitutional matters. But for you, Andrew, are you telling me that you think that um, Brexit is going to be good from an economic point of view, or do you also have these other constitutional and sovereignty concerns? I think, there's, and I've always said this, there's huge opportunities for us, but unless we pick those opportunities up and run with them, uh, then they won't be unlocked. Uh, people suddenly think that the, the good fortune will land in your lap and the box will open and all good will come from it. Uh, life isn't like that. We have to work at this and we have to work to make it a success. There is no doubt about that. I think the conference you're talking to is the one that Keir Starmer uh, and the Labour MP for Cardiff North organised. Um, far from me to correct or speculate on what the Vice Chairman of Airbus, Vice President, sorry, uh, of Airbus said to you at, at that conference. Uh, I was at Airbus only last Thursday out in Toulouse, went to see the facility out there, met a whole host of brilliant uh, British expats who'd gone and relocated there uh, and enjoyed the experience of helping Airbus become the success it is today. To me, immigration wasn't the cornerstone of the referendum, but I understand for many it was. To me, immigration is is a rich tapestry that enriches our country, both socially, economically and culturally. There are, on all sides of this debate and discussion, different reasons why people voted the way they did through the referendum process. I go back to the point that actually I think for the UK economy and for this country, the best future and the most secure future is by taking back control of our destiny and securing that through the blood, sweat and tears and toil that we know this country is able to do and has been such a success as a union for the last 300 years uh, and will continue to be the great success it has achieved over those 300 years. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Let's talk about the Conservative Party in Wales. Um, I remember that many people were astonished in the run-up to the general election last year when there were uh, a couple of opinion polls that were suggesting that the Conservatives were actually in the lead. Uh, And at one point they were going to win more than 50% of the seats. On the ground, uh, Andrew, was that how you saw things at that time? And do you think there was a change during the course of the campaign? And if so, why? Well, obviously, we had the local government campaign uh, at the start, uh, which which had kicked off before the announcement of the general election. And we had a very successful local government campaign. Uh, We fielded 628 council candidates, which was a record for the Welsh Conservative Party. Uh, We got 188, I think, elected. Uh, We are in the executives or controlling uh, six local authorities, the length and breadth of Wales, uh, in areas that uh, we've never really done particularly well in. and in the Vale of Glamorgan, which I can use as a local example, Dennis Powis, which had been Plaid Cymru for, ever since I can remember, four Conservative councillors returned in Dennis Powis. Llander, for example, which had been Lib Dem since 2004, uh, returned two Conservative councillors. Uh, Lanishan and Whitchurch, Whitchurch in particular, four Labour councillors, 
four Conservative councillors returned. Lanishan, uh, three Conservative councillors with one Labour, Gareth Bale, uh, retained his seat there. So I can go right the way through the Phil list. Bale. Phil Bale. Sorry, not Gareth. I think of the footballer then. He hasn't quite given up football and gone on to uh, be in local government yet, but Phil Bale. Nor has the other one become a footballer. <laughs> I bet you they might wish to change jobs. Um, so, you know, across the political spectrum at the early part uh, of the campaign, we were taking seats from the Nationalists, from Labour and from the Liberals we were then. Obviously, as the campaign progressed, um, the, the, the news for the smaller parties became more difficult because actually, if you look at the end result, our vote in Wales was a record vote. It was uh, the best vote since the 1930s, uh, in excess of 30% of the vote. Uh, regrettably, we lost three excellent candidates in Gower, Vale of Clwyd and Cardiff North. But as a proportion of the vote, we achieved a record share of the vote. And so we take comfort from capturing that record share of the vote. But obviously, you don't get any prizes from a record share of the vote. It's excuse the pun, bums on seats uh, and we didn't return the number of MPs we would like to. So it was a tale of two halves. Now you're the leader of the Conservatives in the Assembly and you have been since um, 2011. Don't you find it frustrating that as things stand there is no reasonable expectation that you will ever be in government? No, life is too short to get frustrated. Uh, I think there's every opportunity to get into government. I mean, by the time of the next Assembly election, um, Labour will have been in government here in Wales in one shape or form uh, before devolution and obviously after devolution because in 1997 they formed the Westminster government so by the time we get to 2021 it won't be far off quarter of a century but I go back to the point I made about Brexit and opportunities you need to get people to vote for you and so what we need to do is put before the people of Wales an exciting dynamic manifesto that people can see is unlocking the door of aspiration and changing Wales for the better uh, you can't just take for granted that people say oh yeah they've been there for 25 years oh, it's about time we give the others a go now it is then and uh, actually you have to explain to people tell people and give people a reason to vote for you uh, and I'm keen and confident that we will do that uh, some of the initiatives we brought forward since 2016 already like our green card for travel for young people for example opening a door for people to get on a bus uh, use public transport to broaden their horizons at no cost to themselves uh, is a welcome move in recognising one of the biggest obstacles for people training and bettering themselves is the inability to move to better opportunities. Not even the Labour Party has managed to get a majority of seats since the Assembly was established, so the chances of any other party uh, getting a majority is negligible. So you would have to go into coalition with another party, and the obvious other party would be Plaid Cymru. Now, Leanne Wood has made it absolutely clear that she would never go into coalition. There are others uh, who have hinted that perhaps they might be more inclined to have some kind of working relationship with the Conservatives in government. But um, I don't think anyone has said that they would be prepared to work under a Conservative First Minister, which keeps you out of uh, uh, that particular office, uh, Andrew. How can you see things panning out after the next election? I mean, obviously, you're going to fight to get as many votes and as many seats as possible, but be realistic. Um, you would have to have some kind of coalition or some kind of arrangement to get into government. Is that feasible? Isn't the Conservative Party still for many people in Wales too much of a toxic brand well I think you're asking us to measure up the drapes before even I think this is a North American term measuring up the drapes before the vote has even been cast um, you know we're in 20, 
2018, February, 20, March now, sorry, 2018, the snow is falling outside. There's a long way to go to 2021. Uh, it would be wrong for me to try and paint a landscape post-2021. I'll leave that to the little commentators to do. Uh, in previous interviews that I've given, I've said, I believe the obstacle, the roadblock to progress here in Wales is the Labour Party. Now, you can quite happily settle to be an appendix to the Labour Party and just keep them in government and keep the same old policies uh, with the same economic outcomes, the same public service outcomes and the same educational attainment levels. Or you can actually say, no, the Welsh people are as aspirational and as dynamic as any part of the United Kingdom or any other part of the globe. And we need to unlock that aspiration and change Wales for the better. Uh, And I believe that that will resonate as you get closer to 2021. Because, for example, if I use take on pay in Wales, we hear a lot about austerity, we do from the Labour Party and the parties of the left, but a Welsh worker and a Scottish worker in 1999 took home the same wage. Today, in 2018, a Scottish worker is taking home £49 a week more than a Welsh worker. Can you imagine what benefit that would have to the Welsh economy, leave alone the life chances of people here in Wales, if £49 a week was in every individual's pay packet at the end of the week? Why do you now, think it isn't? Well, it's Labour's policies. Labour are unable to drive economic prosperity here in Wales. They've proven that. They've been there for 20 odd years now and as I said by the time 2021 comes they have failed to lift economic uh, educational attainment levels here in Wales which is a driver to a higher wage economy. They have failed to create the quality jobs that pay good quality wages and the statistics bear it out. These aren't my statistics these are the Office of National Statistics and any other uh, organisation that looks at the economy and comes up with these numbers uh, for people to look at. And they're so spend, they're it, spending it, a lot of money on apprentices. It, it is our job, but but, but ultimately, the, the, what they spend—that's a typical left philosophy. We are spending a lot of money. We are spending a lot of money. It's not about spending the money. It's about the outcomes you get from that spend. And if you just wrap yourself in the comfort blanket of because I've spent it, it's got to be right. You're never going to get on in life. You're not. I mean, it's a bit like the health service. You know, they they turn to the fact now that after their devastating cuts in the last assembly to the health service, that they are spending a record amount of money on our health service. Yet waiting times are the worst of any part of the United Kingdom. If you take the 12-hour wait and the most recent statistics that came in for January, January this year, they try and tell us that more people visited A&E than in any other time of the NHS's history in Wales. Well, two years ago, only 600 more people visited this January than the January in 2016. And yet... 2,000 more people waited 12 hours or more in an A&E department in Wales. We've got four of the health boards in some form of special measures or in deficit situations. How old are £148 million in debt over the last three years? Recruitment crisis about getting doctors, nurses into our health service. And yet this is a party that's been in power for 20 years. If it only just inherited that landscape, you could say you require the time to put it right. But this is a party that has governed for 20 years. And I go back to my opening point you can either be an appendix to that which some parties have chose to do by forming coalitions or you can be a force for change to change Wales for the better to unlock the door of aspirational opportunities for individuals and communities the length and breadth of Wales and that is the choice that will be on the ballot paper. Do you think that the uh, introduction of the ability for the Welsh Government uh, and the National Assembly to vary income tax will 
change the dynamic uh, in the Assembly because, and in Welsh politics, because up until now, since the Assembly began in 1999, uh, essentially what's been going on is that it's been the responsibility of whoever's in charge, and as you say, uh, it's always been Labour, uh, sometimes with helpers, sometimes not, uh, to uh, divvy up the money which they get from uh, the Treasury. Uh, now there is this opportunity with uh, income tax powers coming here for uh, there to be different offers to the electorate at an election time. So you could make an offer uh, in terms of what you want to do with taxation. Other parties could, and then voters would have something perhaps more tangible to um, to vote for. Do you do you think that that is actually going to change anything? Well, actually, I've still got the scars on my back from the debates about bringing tax powers to this place, because uh, if, if you look back in recent Assembly political history, that was quite a battle within the Conservative Party. But I do believe you're quite right to identify it will change the narrative and the dynamics, uh, because ultimately it cannot be right that this place was, in essence, or should I say the government that came out to the Assembly, a spending agency. Uh, it needed to be held to account for the money it was spending. And that mix of, of an element of tax powers with, obviously, the block grant as well and the funding floor that's been put in place to protect that block grant um, is, is a welcome addition, I think, to the political discussion, political debate and political alternative that the voter will have here in Wales. Uh, and I believe that, in time, it will really open up the dynamics of this place. Uh, we're already seeing the extensive use of the limited tax powers that are currently in the possession of the Welsh Government uh, from the Labour point of view of raising tax, the non-residential land transaction tax, for example, by increasing that as of April this year, is going to make Wales very uncompetitive in trying to attract capital into Wales to build some of the big commercial properties that we require because it will automatically have a write-down because our tax levels will be higher than England or Scotland. And at the moment, it is difficult to attract capital into Wales. The Welsh Government have chosen through the tax-raising powers they have at the moment to make it that much more difficult. That's not me saying that. That's the commercial property sector saying that. So when you move to income tax, instead of looking at it as a means to raise tax levels and make us more unattractive, we should be looking to lower tax levels to make it an ability for individuals to keep more of their money, to spend it as they see fit and attract capital into Wales that overall will lift the tax take by lowering tax. You know, Ireland didn't lower, although we're not getting this power over corporation tax, Ireland didn't lower corporation tax to lose tax revenues. They saw, as most economies see, that if you have a low tax environment, you actually attract more money into that jurisdiction and overall your tax takes increases. When you actually raise taxes, that's punitive and that stops and, and stops and doesn't incentivize people to go out and earn money. Back in 2016, when the election took place, you won less seats than Plaid Cymru. They have managed to lose two of their members, one who left and one who uh, they decided to expel from their group. And you've got um, an additional member uh, Mark Reckless, who is not actually a member of the Conservative Party now. He used to be a Conservative MP. He then defected to UKIP. Uh, he was elected as a UKIP 
AM in 2016, but he decided to leave UKIP and he now sits as an independent assembly member, but he's allowed in your group. Now, that has caused quite a bit of controversy in your party, Andrew. Um, Would you like to see Mark Reckless join the Conservative Party and sit actually as a Conservative AM? I'm not sure what trouble it's caused within the party, I have to say, um, because no one's made those representations to me, I have to say. Um, Mark, my, understa- Mark chose, my understanding is, Mark, ju- just a second, sorry, my understanding, Andrew, is that um, uh, at Westminster there was quite a lot of antagonism towards Mark because when he left the Conservatives mm. to join UKIP, it was just before the party conference and it was synchronised in order to cause maximum embarrassment for the party. Mm-hmm. Now, well, thank you for clarifying that, because uh, that's a slightly different picture to obviously what you painted in your opening remarks to me. Uh, Mark, at the end of the day, applied to take the Conservative whip in the Assembly. He has never applied, as I understand it, um, for membership uh, of the party since he left back in 2014. It's, it's, it's a well-trodden route that people decide to take a whip within a legislature or in a council chamber or, or anywhere. Uh, that's Mark's choice. Um, and to date, I do not believe Mark has applied for or sought membership of the Conservative Party. Um, we Would you back him in doing so? Well, if there's no application, there's nothing to discuss. Mark, at the end of the day, is a valued member of our group, working with our group here in the Assembly to add a strong voice to the centre-right presence here in Wales. Uh, At the end of the party process, it is for individuals to decide whether they want to come into the fold or not, uh, and by applying to be members. Uh, Anyone can apply, uh, but obviously there are rules that you have to subscribe to, and if you find yourself unable to subscribe to those rules, you leave the party. But what what we have here is a group of 12 Welsh Conservative AMs, who I think by most most people's acknowledgement are punching well above their weight in holding Labour to account uh, from a predominant position Labour have here uh, and ultimately bringing forward policies that will transform Wales uh, and that's what our focus is as Welsh Conservatives. I think it is you know, reflective of, of, the, of the enthusiasm and the dynamics of the Welsh Conservatives that people are looking at us and deciding to come to us and joining us. So if Mark Reckless came to you and said I would like to join the Conservative Party. Would you uh, give him an endorsement? Well, that's not my choice. Uh, because well, it's your choice whether to give him an endorsement or not. Well, it's not my... Mark is a good member of the Welsh Conservative Party a group here in, in the Assembly, or should I say group in the Assembly. Uh, he has never sought membership. He has never discussed membership with me of the party. Um, so I, I don't know even know if that's on his horizon. I don't want to put words in Mark's mouth. Um, at the end of the day, he might be deciding that he has other uh, horizons he wants to look at. What I I do know is that as of April last year, Mark applied to join the Conservative group and take the whip here in the Assembly, uh, as happens in legislatures across the globe. Uh, I fail to see why people get so anxious about that, uh, but that's their lookout, that is, and, uh, and we continue to get on with the work of being the opposition here in the Assembly. Just finally, Andrew, um, I want to raise with you um, an appalling event that has cast a huge shadow over the Assembly since last November, which is the death of Carl Sargent and the attempts to find out the truth about how he was treated. What's your perspective on this, Andrew? 
You are quite right to call it an appalling uh, event, a tragic event. Um, tragedy acutely felt more by obviously Carl's family and his very close network of friends, both politically and friends that he had before he came into politics. It would be wrong for me to try and imply in any shape or form that I was someone who went for a pint with Carl, uh, but I'd like to think that... Uh, when we passed in the corridor or in the chamber, we always had a very strong and good relationship. Indeed, every time I stood up for First Minister's questions, and it'd be uh, First Minister's questions, the presiding officer would say leader of the opposition. Uh, and as I got up to stand, Carl would always shout, Paul Davis, he would then. And we always had a very good relationship. Um, he'd always say, what's happening, boss, back? Uh, and I recognise that, that, that phrase because it's a phrase that I use very often on the farmyard or when you walk into a mechanic's yard or something because I think I'm correct in saying and again I stand to be corrected Carl and myself would have been about the only two assembly members who never went to university here I think everyone else has got a university degree of some shape or form so we, we had more in common than maybe others give credit for uh, I want to get to the bottom of this I want to find the truth uh, it, we owe that to Carl's memory and his legacy, a very strong legacy four pieces of legislation were taken through this institution by Carl Carl believed passionately in helping the disadvantaged. He put that passion to great effect here. Uh, he is sorely missed every day. And the tragic circumstances that led to him looking down that long, dark corridor of life as he saw it at that time, and rather than seeing a bright glow of sunshine at the end of it, he just saw darkness. And he walked into the room in his house and shut the door and took his own life warrants and deserves that we as assembly members get to the truth of what happened because it should never ever be allowed to happen again that someone feels that they've been deserted in their hour of need and I have an uncle who took his own life and to this day we still try and reflect on why he took his own life and if I can offer some answers along with many of the others who are trying to seek those answers I just hope that does justice to Carl's legacy and offers an element of comfort to his family who deserve to have that comfort and that final resting uh, of understanding that Carl's life was an example that we should hold up to others because he achieved so much and he had so much more to give. Do you have concerns about the way he was treated by the First Minister? Well... I don't want to prejudice the inquiries that are ongoing at the moment, uh, and those inquiries will look at all aspects, because there's four in total, one has reported a date. Regrettably, that hasn't been made available. Uh, that concerns me greatly, because I want to see the sunshine of transparency shine to make sure that no stone is left unturned. Um, I'm sure that from a human point of view, the First Minister has been through a horrid time uh, through the last weeks and months questioning his, uh, himself whether he did enough, whether he should have done things differently um, but that pales into insignificance compared to the loss the grief the lack of, uh, of any sense as to why we haven't not got Carl with us today uh, that his family and his friends must feel and so we owe it to him and his family and his friends to get the answers and I hope that the First Minister will engage fully with this process and rather look at it as a political process, look at it as a natural justice process where 
everything should be put on the table and there shouldn't be no dark corners where he hopes the light won't be shone. Thank you very much, Andrew L.T. Davis. Thank you. Cheers, Martin. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.